Well, good morning, all. It's time for our very last uh, discussion for this uh, Cato University. And it would, I thought it would be appropriate to meditate a bit on uh, why we've gathered here and what we can do with the knowledge that we've gained and we've shared and exchanged with each other. Uh, Cato, since it was first founded, had a commitment to the promulgation of these principles, as I explained at the opening session, Cato Institute was named for that after Cato's letters, which articulated the principles of limited Republican government in terms that normal people, which includes all of us here, I hope, can understand and transmit to their friends, and then also applied it to particular issues. So at this seminar, we had a bit of both, mainly oriented towards the principles, but yesterday, some real expert application to financial markets, criminal justice issues, and of course, uh, Mario Grady's presentation on the catastrophe of the drug war. When Cato was first set up, the very first summer seminar was in 1978. So it was established in 1977, and in 1978 was our first summer seminar. And I actually participated in that. I was one of the first interns at the Cato Institute. There are three of us. We were dubbed the Cato clones. And uh, subsequently, I went on, did lots of other things before coming get back to Cato uh, many years later. Uh, the readings for that seminar was the first attempt to do something like that by Cato. And I remember sitting around, and uh, Murray Rothbard, a number of other people were on the faculty, and we came up with a set of readings that literally took two boxes. It was an overreach. I have to read this. I have to read that. Later, we understood you need to trim these things down and make priorities as to what's important and what isn't. But touching back to our principles is absolutely central to everything we do. And institutions, as we know, often suffer from institutional drift. Look at what an organization is doing now, and then look what it was established to do. And sometimes you find that you might trace a historical path, but there's really no relationship between the two. That's especially true with endowed organizations, institutions that are set up with a giant pot of money from someone who died and left something behind, uh, or, of course, state institutions, uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, as we all know, is still there to protect us from the Soviet Union. Uh, it, it will be there in perpetuity. They keep up coming up with new functions for these military alliances. Uh, currently, NATO is supposed to be a, a green organization, protecting us from North Sea pollution with all those warships and cruise missiles. But for Cato, it was very important that it always be close to its principles, and everything we do can reach back and touch our fundamental principles, a kind of philosopher's stone. I want to look then not only to the idea of having principles because they're important to us, they're part of our personal integrity, but there's a reason to have them, and that is to change the world. Not merely to sit down smugly saying, I was right, I told you so, that wouldn't work. If you tried that, it would be a disaster. And then smiling quietly to yourself. That's a very, very thin kind of satisfaction. Much more important to actually try to change the world. 
So we can go back and look at the concluding text of the Declaration of Independence. This is a very, very important document to the Cato Institute, to me personally. We know it was written by people at a particular time that they were imperfect human beings, that they did not fulfill all of the things that they promised. But they set out certain principles that continue to inspire people and that really did change the world. So as it starts out, or excuse me, as it ends, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other. Notice the language is very important. Not we publicly state, but it was the signers mutually pledging to each other. That's important. So think about in the context of the people sitting around you today and the kind of mutual pledge that we can make that we will change the world for the better. So we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Now we think about the signers of that declaration. Nine of them lost their lives during the struggle for independence. Uh, none of them directly in combat, but many suffered terrible hardships. They certainly suffered the loss of their property uh, and having to be driven from their homes. So nine of them did die during the course of that struggle for independence. Five of them were imprisoned uh, by the British authorities and quite often under terrible circumstances. Many lost their fortunes. They spent all their money to purchase weapons or equipment or food to outfit troops that they supported. And also the well-documented occasions in which they said when the British had occupied their homes or their farms, and people said, well, of course, we don't want to attack them. They're, they're in your house. They said, no. It is now a military target, and you may destroy everything I own for the purpose of realizing our ends. But not a single one lost his sacred honor. Not a single one went back, recanted, went over to the other side. They all maintained that fundamental pledge. So each one of the founders was just one person. But if you think about what a mutual pledge is about, it makes a whole that's greater than the sum of the parts. Because we can generate strength amongst ourselves by living up to the words that we speak. We can act in concert. And doing that, pledging oneself publicly, can make us much, much stronger when you make that commitment. This is something that the Romans understood when going into battle. You've heard the expression, to burn your bridges behind you, or to burn the ships. Because the centurions would stand before the cohorts and say, you see there is no retreat. Bridges have been burned. Ships have departed. So you can't run away. So the choices are not victory or defeat or retreat. You have two choices. It's conquer or die. And then we could imagine the legionnaires having a discussion. What do you think? Conquer, die, which one? <laughs> and they generally said, okay, conquer. That seems better rather than die because this other option has been removed. And that was what pledging their sacred honor meant. And of course, as we know, 
Benjamin Franklin's words, possibly apocryphal, but associated with him ever after. After they had signed that document, he said, gentlemen, we, we must all hang together, for if we do not, we shall certainly hang separately. The point being, they all understood what they were doing when they signed that document. They were signing their own death warrants in the event of a failure. We don't have to do that, but we do have to look each other in the eyes at some point, some future Cato University event, and say, so what did I do to advance liberty? What did I do to diminish the incidence of violence and coercion in the world? So what can one person do? The answer is a lot, a great deal. I want to run through some of the things that are open to us, even just individually and separately. And the first one that each one of us can do is to educate ourselves, to become beacons of information. Leonard Reed, in my opinion, one of the really honorable um, founders of the modern classical liberal movement, 1946, when he establishes the Foundation for Economic Education, a very grim, dark, dark time in history as the world had just staggered out of a horrific conflict with malignant, murderous forms of collectivism, and it looked at home as though the tide of socialism was advancing, and ideas of individual freedom were old-fashioned, and ideas of constitutionally limited government were perhaps even doomed. <clears throat> And he said, each one of us should seek to educate ourselves and establish ourselves in such a way that other people will seek us out as a beacon. And that means not only reading a lot of books and thinking and watching that today, YouTube videos and learnliberty.org and all those under, other wonderful things, but also being the person that other people will ask, what do you think about that? And that's not easy because we can face it we're generally a very opinionated group of people here. And opinionated people, sometimes we are motivated to share our opinions even when they're not very welcome with other people, which tends to drive them away. Uh, the impulse that I often have to suppress, because I've, I learned over the years, it doesn't make you many friends, of correcting all the mistakes we hear said about us. And by and large, that's not very welcome just walking up and saying, oh, that's wrong, and correcting other people continuously. Uh, a colleague of mine put it rather nicely. He said he had this experience also and found out wasn't getting him very far, overhearing a conversation, intervening and saying, oh, you're wrong. Oh, and you're wrong too, as well. He realized that it was pointless at any given moment, literally billions of stupid things are being said all over the planet. Just right now, there are billions of idiotic comments being made. And you can't go around correcting them all. Imagine that the NSA were to establish some special system with a super-secret spy plane, and you could get in as an engineer, and you could be able to monitor all the dumb things being said. So you had a demometer would measure dumbness. And you could fly around the world and just parachute and break through the window and say, that's wrong. <laughs> that would be a big waste of your time. But 
if you can become knowledgeable about issues and you respect other people, the real victory is when they come to you and say, what do you think about that? Your opinion would be interesting to me. And that's a difficult thing to achieve. But be that person that other people will look to and say, you've thought about this, what's your opinion? And then the most satisfying, imaginable form of an intellectual victory is not when you've defeated someone, thou art in error, and rebut them and embarrass them in front of their friends. But rather, after a conversation, when you hear six months or two years or five years later, that person repeat back to another person what you had said. That's really, really gratifying. When you are arguing, discussing free trade versus protectionism, uh, and this one is a difficult one for me because I think protectionism is the economic policy of stupid people, so it's difficult to maintain that respect, but lots of smart people do advance economic fallacies. But when you discuss it with them, and I've had that experience on this particular issue, restrain yourself, you offer good arguments, and say, well, just think about that. And then, a couple years later, you find this person is an ardent free trader. Right? That was a great victory, and you can achieve that if you become immersed in the ideas and are able to articulate them. Now, having said that, don't be afraid to speak out. And here there's that fine line of not being a nudge, not being the irritating person who bugs other people all the time. But don't be silent when there are important issues at stake. Do so in a diplomatic way, of course. But be willing to speak out in all the different ways that are available to us now, through electronic media, a telephone, a Took a snapshot of my phone there. Um, may not seem like it, but I actually am old enough to remember having cranked a telephone in my grandparents' house. Uh, and that's what you had to do. And then someone came on and, and asked if you wanted to speak to another person and made the connection. Can you imagine how onerous that was? Uh, but now the opportunities to share our views in a sweet way, even with Facebook and so on, is they've just advanced tremendously. As David Bowes pointed, pointed out, Facebook is not well used when one just posts comments that says, so-and-so is an idiot. Although it may be true, it's probably not the best way to articulate your views, but rather to lay out an argument with a kind of a soft and diplomatic approach, and you would be surprised how many people will have their lives changed as a consequence. Now, this speaking out can be dramatic. It can entail a great commitment. Uh, think about Rosa Parks. I think she's a remarkably admirable person. She was a lady who, as she said, just didn't want to get up because her feet were tired. When she was ordered in accordance with the law, that was imposed on transportation companies, that black and white people were not allowed to sit together. As it turns out, the people on the bus and the subway generally didn't care that much about it. They would sit in whatever was the convenient seat. But in their wisdom, the state legislature said that's not allowed and forced private companies 
to hire people to enforce this and establish little barriers between the races and impose that on people at rather substantial cost to the private firms who were forced to do that. And she just said, no, I'm not moving. And you can see the law enforcement officer, there's a sense of embarrassment, I think, as he's fingerprinting this lady who just said, I'm not getting up. And she made a commitment. She was a humble person, but she really changed the world. And I think that people like that can make an enormous difference. Now here's a man who died just recently, actually, in the District of Columbia. Dr. Franklin Kameny, he was a World War II veteran, was a map maker, cartographer. You can imagine how important that is. Worked for the United States Geological Survey after the war. And then they found out that uh, he was homosexual. They said, you can't have homos making maps. I mean, that doesn't make any sense, right? Can you imagine a homo map? No way. So they fired him. They said, get out. And of course, opened the files on him and so on. And he fought them. He said, what does that have to do with making maps? And he became a tough crusader, a gentleman, but a real crusader. And he changed the world because he said, I'm not going to go quietly and be shamed and humiliated by you. I'm not afraid of you. And he changed the world. And this lady, Suzette Kilo, I love this picture. You can see it there. Uh, she has the sign on her home. Normally it says for sale. Hers says not for sale. And that was the Institute for Justice's uh, program. She didn't want to sell her house so that they could give it to some cronies who were going to build a Pfizer plant that would be a better class of taxpayers. And she said, no, I'm not moving, and fought. Now, we lost in that particular case. And that was a bit of a blow. It was shocking to see a majority of the Supreme Court say, well, it says public use, but, I mean, really, really, do, do you want to be bound by that when you could have a better class of taxpayers? So we lost that. That was, it really was a shock. But it also shocked the whole country. We said, I didn't know that. Someone can just take my house and give it to another private party. It's not even for some public use like a road or or military installation to protect us from the Canadians or anything like that, right? It's just to give to somebody else. And consequently, there was a grassroots movement to change the state constitutions to say, we, don't, we do not allow that under our state law. And 40 states passed that. Much tougher protection than the spineless Supreme Court was willing to offer the property owners at the federal level. And I should point out also that Cato's president, John Allison, when he was at the time the CEO of BB&T Bank, went to his board of directors and said, this is shocking, and I want a policy statement from the board of directors that BB&T will not finance any property acquisition or improvement that is stolen 
that has been confiscated from other people. And they announced that. And they lost a lot of business. They also gained some business, including mine, because that was the right thing to do. They said, we will not participate in financing uh, commercial, real estate, or other ventures that have been based on just stealing from people and cronyism. And then this man, whom you got to hear, our chairman, so our president, current president, is a man of principle, and our chairman also. Uh, Bob Levy, uh, I indicated to you why I respect him. Not only is he a logic machine, he just, you notice, bam, 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 bam. He knows the arguments inside out and upside down. But also, he's a person of great personal integrity. He doesn't just say, is this convenient for me or pleasant or fun? He says, what is the right thing to do? That's one of the questions Bob always asks himself. What's the right thing to do? And in the case of Heller v. versus DC, uh, he was the primary moving force behind that. He was not a plaintiff. But he and Clark Neely had sat down at the Institute for Justice and thought about this and said, you know, we have a problem. There are now court decisions coming out around the country in the Second Amendment. This will be resolved someday before the Supreme Court. Let's make sure it is resolved with the right case and the right plaintiffs and the right arguments. Because we don't want some public defender trying to knock four years off the sentence of a robber or a bandit who robbed a 7-Eleven and then got an additional four years for illegal firearms possession. That's not the case we want for the Second Amendment to be litigated on. So they assembled this. He put up his own money. Uh, he's a, a prosperous gentleman from his business career. He financed 100% of it. He didn't even own a firearm. It wasn't a personal issue for him in that way. It was an issue of the law. And then similarly, as issues were coming up about equal rights for gay people, he sat down, as he always does, respectfully. He listened to both sides. He read all the arguments. He's just a voracious reader and thinker and made notes and said, I've concluded that this prohibition is unjustifiable and an invidious form of discrimination against a class of citizens. And it has to go. And he became very involved in the Proposition 8 case in California. Although, as I mentioned, uh, there's no personal interest whatsoever in this. As far as I know, there are no gay people in his family he's aware of that moved him or anything. He just said, this is just the right thing to do, that people not be subject to this discrimination. So there are a lot of people who stand out in very dramatic ways like that. But we can also speak out in much less dramatic ways, each one of us individually. And here's one thing that does change minds. Letters to the editor. People read those. They pay attention to them. And you can change minds by sitting down and crafting a letter to the editor. Now, we have sessions for our interns at Cato on how to write a letter to the editor. It's actually harder to do than you might think. Because long letters rarely get published, although they're so satisfying that just toss in every argument and every form of personal abuse and calumny imaginable against the editors or the politicians or whomever it is that you're denouncing. But they generally don't publish them. Or if they edit them, you can be very sure they will not put in what you thought was important. It'll be the least important arguments that will be highlighted. 
So boiling that down to make one point is hard work, but you can do it. What I always recommend is write two letters. First, the letter that really expresses how you feel, that opens up, dear idiot. Right? <laughs> Print that letter out and savor it, and then put it to the side. Right? You wrote it. You got it out. Now write the letter you hope to be published. Dear editor. <laughs> and make your one point that you hope people will come away and read that and say, yeah, I'm, I'm not so sure about that law or that campaign or that activity or whatever it happens to be, or that editorial stance of the newspaper. Just one argument, one point. Elegantly, in a gracious way, and you can change minds because people read those. It's one of the most highly read parts of magazines and newspapers. You can write letters to your elected representatives. They do read them, not in the sense of the old days that they would sit down and, and unscroll the parchment and read the whole letter. They have staff for that. But the staff read them and count them. And they do get reports. And they say, well, what do the letters say? And I was surprised, talking to congressional staff years ago, how few letters they get. It's not that many. So I say, well, our letters are three to one against. Say, well, what was that? We got 21 letters against and seven for. They get 28 letters, and they count them. Now, the ones they don't pay as much attention to are the ones that are mass letters. You know, check the box in the postcard and mail it, or do it online, and so on. Those they don't pay as much attention to, because you can gin those up. But an actual written letter, dear representative, dear senator, dear governor, that is then sent off, either by email, but not just a form cut and paste, but you write your views into it, will make a difference. They do read them. <clears throat> you can also speak out publicly. So my brother uh, was just moved recently to testify in front of the city council. He'd never done that in his life, and he sent me his testimony. We talked over the phone, and he was kind of nervous about it. He's, he's not a very public person. But it was an issue that he thought was really important. Colorado, where he lives, had passed the marijuana initiative. He supported it. He has never smoked a joint or anything in his life. He's never had a beer. He's never had a gin and tonic. He's an absolute teetotaler. He likes Coca-Cola. And that's, that's his primary vice uh, in that regard. But he sat down, and the whole audience, hundreds of people, was riveted on him. He said, you know, I learned more about the drug culture than I ever imagined possible. And the way I learned it was by being foreman of a jury in a murder trial. And he related, and the room was very quiet, a young woman in their community who had become a distributor, drug dealer, and a lot of money, a lot more money than your average 19-year-old woman is going to make, bringing in $20,000 a month. So that's pretty attractive. It moved very quickly into the fast life, but it was a short life. The primary drug distributor, the drug boss, two layers up in Denver, 
thought that she had pointed him out to the feds. And so he said, we learned in great detail about the two men that uh, were hired. They went to a particular sporting goods shop. They spent 78 minutes there purchasing and selecting and weighing the proper dumbbells that they purchased so they could have a private meeting with her and beat her to death. So he said, if you think there is no drug, there are no drugs in our community, you are mistaken. It's here. It's happening. And what do you want? Would you rather have people being beaten to death in the alley? Or would you rather have a marijuana shop like a liquor shop? And today, no one gets beaten to death because of a beer delivery. But that used to happen. Not anymore. And they listened. Now, unfortunately, in came a lot of powerful people, namely the heads of the local military bases, who said, we will forbid soldiers from coming into this town if you do that. So, unfortunately, they lost in the city council. However, the next city, he's also lobbying, and he thinks he's going to win there. And again, he has the kind of authority of not being someone who walks up and says, oh, uh, like, um, oh, marijuana, right. <laughs> right? He doesn't do that. He's a member of the community and someone that would get their respect. You can give a book to someone. Right? You can find a high school student or someone in your community. It might be a son, daughter, nephew, niece, grandchild. And have a big impact on that person's life by being the one who says, you know, here you might find this book, The Law by Frederick Bastiat, interesting, or David Bose's book. I was personally very, very proud my nephew in Germany never really pushed the classical liberalism on them. They kind of knew my views. But when he was a boy, I gave him the things you normally give to boys, which is a copy of Bastiat in German <laughs> when, when he was 12. And, um, and then David Friedman's, the German edition of his book on hidden order. And he was interested in economics. I never argued and never pushed it. He said, Interesting for economics. I also got him lots of other books as well. And then the traditional, when he graduated from gymnasium, I gave him the traditional gift of the complete works of Adam Smith. <laughs> and then when he went to the university in Hamburg, and his first paper, his parents were so happy with me, it was on Adam Smith. And the next week, when the professor met with the students, he had photocopied and stapled copies of Christian's paper, and he handed it out and he said, this is a University of Hamburg paper. This is the model you should emulate. So his parents called me up. <laughs> Thank you for the weird books. <laughs> uh, and then he went on and wrote his, uh, his uh, thesis on uh, a comparison of Hayek and Buchanan evolved and designed constitutional orders. So, and that was because of those little books I gave to him when he was a young lad. Now, what can we do in cooperation with other people? Here are just some thoughts, some opportunities. 
You can indeed organize a local group. If there's some injustice, some theft of property, or some indignity visited on some group of persons, this will vary from country to country, place to place, community to community. But if you're the one who stands up and says, I don't think we should put up with this. We could do something about this. You will usually find you are not alone. There may be just a few of you at the beginning. Do you remember that the Anti-Corn Law League, a huge mass movement in England, that radically changed British politics and British life by instituting freedom of trade. When they first organized, there were three of them who showed up. Three of them. That was, a, as they said in the, at that time in England, a bummer. But they said, well, we're going to do this. This is the right thing to do. Our government is starving people forcing them to pay these higher prices, forbidding the importation of food. This is nuts. And they organized a movement. And out of that came huge mass movements, one of the great libertarian mobilization campaigns. They had pamphleteers, essay contests, programs for students and young people to express their views on the matter. They established a newsletter, which is still being published, The Economist which was originally the newsletter of the Anti-Corn Law League, of this mass libertarian movement. And from that came peace movements, movements for elimination of involuntary servitude, and so on that grew out of that. <clears throat> Oops, sorry. So some of the opportunities that we have, think about the many issues that we face. If there's one that's really important to you, Organize an organization. There are often groups that will allow you to set up chapters, Freedom Works, Americans for Prosperity, or National Taxpayers Union, or a campaign for marijuana reform. There are all these different organizations. You can now use Google, find them, and consider establishing a local affiliate. In Colorado Springs, where my uh, brother lives, or she's in the next town, a local libertarian who's a K-1 Institute a benefactor did something remarkable in his town. It's very local, but it was a really noble thing to do. And that is that in that city they had a accumulation of homeless people or vagrants as they used to be called. People who had had some terrible misfortune in their life, possibly problems with alcohol or narcotics, dependency. And they were camping out and it created a camping situation in the dry riverbeds. This is really not smart in an area subject to terrible flash flooding. You just get washed away and everyone will be killed. So of course the local city authorities said, well we can't have this, and they sent in the police with their truncheons and batons and beat them up and kicked them out and tore down their tents and took all of their stuff and put it into the trash. That's terrible. This is all they had, including military veterans, their discharge papers, identity documents, all into the dumpsters and hauled off. And these people roughed up and dragged out. And he stood forth, he said, I don't want to live in that kind of community. That's not right. And he went to other business leaders and people and said, let's deal with this correctly. They raised money locally, voluntarily. They hired social workers people who had some training in how to deal with people's problems, and sent them in to talk to these people, not beat them up. 
said, have you got any family? Well, I've got a sister who lives in, uh, in Michigan. Well, let, let's look up her phone number. Let's call her. said, you know your brother, sister's here, and so on. Got them a plane ticket, sent them to places that would accept them, reunited families, helped people to get jobs. Right? Sometimes people would have been hard to employ. They didn't have any work record for the past couple of years, but found people say, I'm, I'm willing to take them on. Found people who would put them up in their homes, motels that said, we'll open up these rooms and just if you can just pay us enough to pay the maids to clean them, we'll deal with that. Dealt with everybody. Everybody found a place to live, a job, some dignity. And the city council then, they said, now pass an ordinance against sleeping or camping in the middle of a dry riverbed. But do it properly. And they solved that problem. And they did so in an honorable way. It was a micro issue. But he said, that's not the kind of community we want to live in. And Joe was able to stand up. Joe Woodford, in case you're interested, Woodford Manufacturing in Colorado Springs, Colorado, uh, and did the right thing. And it affected people. So it wasn't this big national issue. But in their community, they made it a more voluntary, less unjust community. Now you can also open your checkbook or PayPal account or what have you. There are a lot of organizations out there doing important work. And you can support them also financially. And there is significance of writing a $100 check. And I do hope for the younger people here that you get into that habit. And now it can be done online. It's really easy. So every month I donate to a number of organizations, including Students for Liberty. And I hear this little distant sound as the money is sucked out of my bank account on a monthly basis. It doesn't really hurt that much. And I'm proud of what my money does. I'm also very careful with it. I don't give it to groups that I consider it to be wasteful. If I've observed waste, I'll tell them that and say, I'm not going to support you anymore. But there are groups out there that do a good job with the funds that we make available to, to them. I want to tell you a story about one person who didn't get a lot of credit, if you will. Not many people know about this person. But without this one human being, the world would be a very, very different place. It would not be as free as it is. And we sometimes worry about all of the lack of freedoms that we experience, but do compare it to the other alternatives in other places of the world and other times. We do enjoy a remarkable degree of personal liberty. Uh, this person is Jean-Claude Van Marie Vincent de Gournay. Everybody knows his name, of course. He was, in one sense, one of the most important people who ever lived. He was a merchant and a businessman in France. He was the intendant of commerce, which was a kind of a royal office for the supervision of business, regulator, if you will, from the time. He understood business as a businessman, but also in his status as being a regulator. And he saw the stupidity and foolishness and wickedness and inefficiency and waste and destruction of intervening into markets and stopping people from coming to mutually beneficial exchanges. Often with horrific violence, people were broken on the wheel. If you can just imagine what that meant, the horrific torture, because they sold at the wrong price. 
or that the cloth that they sold was not of the approved sort in the marketplace. And he, he witnessed this. He was a translator and a financier, uh, published works that explained the free market to people. He used his own money to finance these. So Richard Cantillon's book, Essay on the Nature of Commerce in General, a very, very important early treatise in economics by an Irish banker. It's a wonderful book. You can get it now. It's available in bilingual edition. Which he described the entrepreneur, one of the first uses of this term. Uh, in English, it's undertaker, by the way, but that term has come to have a different meaning now, the one who buries you. But the original word for entrepreneur was undertaker, which has led some people to claim that, you know, the French don't even have a word for entrepreneur. <laughs> but uh, he explained what the entrepreneur was. It's a very interesting definition. The one who buys at a certain price in order to sell at an uncertain price. So he defined the entrepreneur as the one who bears risk, and that's a really important function in the market. There are other theories of entrepreneurship as well, but his was, I think it's fair to say, the first well-articulated theory of what the entrepreneur was and how important entrepreneurship was for making the world a better place. He promoted, some have argued originated, but certainly promoted this phrase, uh, laissez-faire, laissez-passer. Let people do what they want, let them come and go, and then of course after that, le monde va de lui-même. The world runs itself. You don't need to have intendants of commerce directing and telling you at what price you must sell what goods. This is not necessary. The world runs itself if you establish the right principles. Now here's how he had a particularly great influence. He was the mentor to Anne-Robert-Jacques Turgot. This man became Minister of Finance. He took him under his wing, if you will, took him into the markets, explained how markets work, and showed the cruelty of the mercantilist system and the irrationality and stupidity of stopping people from engaging in mutually beneficial exchanges with what was theirs. He dramatically changed the world. Most people don't know his name, but we all have benefited enormously from the efforts of this entrepreneur, this businessman, to, who sat down and said, I'm going to help to change the world. And he was enormously successful. So I think we should celebrate all of the sponsors of Liberty, those people who make it possible for us to enjoy our freedom, and that includes all of the sponsors of the Cato Institute who make it possible for there to be consistent, principled voices for liberty on radio and television and on Twitter and public forums and so on, and that those sponsors are changing the world. Now, they generally don't get big monuments they don't get uh, statues. Political leaders get that, right? Business people, by and large, don't. Every time you turn around and you see statues of great leaders, you can be pretty sure they killed a lot of people. But the people who generate life, they don't get the big statues. The people who grow the food and build the tables and generate the medicines and all the things that make life possible, where is their monument? And we can think, 
of the marker for Sir Christopher Wren's tomb in St. Paul's Cathedral. Reader, if you seek his monument, look around you. They didn't make a special statue for him. His monument was the fabulous cathedral and indeed much of London that he had built as an architect. That was his monument, not a statue to him with a sword in his hand, but all of the beautiful creations for which he was responsible. So if you seek the monument of the supporters of liberty, just look around you. You don't see anyone in chains being dragged off into slavery. You see people expressing their views freely and openly without fear. You see a society of astonishing prosperity, progress, and wealth. And that is the monument of the supporters of freedom. Thank all of you from my heart for being a part of this effort. Thank you so much.